0: When I became a Christian in the in the late 80s, I mean, there were all kinds of voices, and I had no idea how to do this, because some of them were telling me to do these diametrically opposing things. Uh, and um, and so uh, when I stumbled across wisdom literature in, in Israel, it was like a breath of fresh air. Uh, because um, I grew up in um, a world where things were fairly simple. It was, uh, I grew up out in the middle of the country in Alabama. And um, and so being raised by blue-collar working-class people in, in the deep country, things were pretty simple. You were kind of measured by what you did. You weren't measured by what you knew. And so the concept of wisdom began. really appealed to me because wisdom was really about how you navigated the world. In fact, a good... Definition, I think, for wisdom in the biblical text is um, how to live a covenant life in a covenant hostile context. I think that's what wisdom is: is how to live a covenant life in a covenant hostile context. And um, and, and you you get this specifically in the book of Proverbs, uh, and uh, the book of Proverbs aimed at that. And as um, as David mentioned, wisdom wisdom really is doesn't have anything to do with your intellectual abilities. Um, for example, I because of what I do for a living, I know I know lots of people. In fact, the vast majority of my friends would be people that other people would think were the smartest people they had ever met. And yet, I could put on a list, a fairly short list of those guys who I think I would call wise. because wise isn't if you know X number of languages or if you can talk, you know uh, with clarity about, Ancient history or mathematics or physics. It's how do you deal with your neighbor? How do you interact with the opposite sex? How do you engage and use your money? How do you deal with authority? How do you uh, handle your emotions? How do you use your words? How do you, I mean, it's all these really practical things, like how to navigate life. And so for Israel, I think it's incredible that Israel has this as a major component of their spirituality. It's, um, we, when we think of spirituality and we think of living like a Christian, we think of things like prayer and fasting and the miraculous and stuff like that. And they thought those things too, but also uh, alongside of those things and, and not beneath those things. They thought about how to raise your kids and how to get along in marriage and how to get along if you weren't married and how to navigate the world around you. I mean, all of those things, practical things. How do you take care of business at your job? How is it that you work? How is it that you spend leisure? How do you eat? How do you drink? How do you do all of that stuff Uh, to the glory of God? I mean, all this was a major component of how they thought about living out a covenant life in a context that was covenant-hostile. And so, uh, we're going to talk about just three things. There's tons to talk about in Proverbs, but we're going to talk about three things. First of all, the motivation, and motivation is a really sorry word for what I'm going to say there, but it's just the best one that comes up. Motivation for, for wisdom. The second are the competing voices to wisdom, and then the third is the gospel and wisdom. Motivation for wisdom, competing voices for wisdom, the gospel and wisdom. The motivation for wisdom is, um, like I said, motivation is kind of a lousy word. Really, the, but, but all the other stuff that I know how to call it is uh, egg-heady uh, kind of stuff. And, and so, but I'm going to drop an egg-heady kind of thing on you so that you can maybe attach it to motivation. But it's the first and controlling principle of wisdom. It is the first and controlling principle of wisdom. So it's like grammar in a language. Once you learn grammar, Like, uh, you know, when you're a kid, when you go to junior high school or high school, nobody says, okay, now you can forget grammar. And now we're going to teach you some other stuff about your language. That's not, that's not possible. Uh, so grammar and syntax and just the basics are the first and controlling principles. Or the alphabet. You know, stuff like that. You can't just forget that stuff. You have to uh, take it and it, it's the beginning of how you talk. And, and now it forms and shapes the rest of how you talk. It controls it. And so th- wisdom has a thing like that too. And you probably have already guessed it. In chapter 1, verse 7 of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let's go to another text uh, uh, real, uh, real quick here. Down at the bottom of, uh, of uh, chapter 1, the description of those people who are in God's wrath. They hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Uh, contradistinctively, the son, who is uh, always the recipient of these messages in 1 through 9, uh, is told that he can find wisdom if he seeks for it like silver and gold. And then in verse 4 of chapter 2, he say, it says, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Turn real quick to chapter 9. Chapter 9 uh, also, and you, and you see how this is, is utilized here, in verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is inside. Now, the way the Proverbs are written, the Proverbs are written in these lines. You, you, can, you can tell. They're really pithy, kind of short sayings uh, as a general rule. And oftentimes, the second line just reiterates in a different way the first line. So, for example, um, I feel like my mom instinctively knew how to do this. Uh, she would she would say, you are in big trouble, mister. Just wait till your father gets home, right? That's, uh, yeah, that's uh, technically along the, line, uh, along the lines of Hebrew poetry. My mom was dropping some serious parallelism there. And so, so, You are in big trouble, line A, line B, wait till your father gets home. Just saying the same thing. Just saying the same thing in two really different ways, both of them. Overtly threatening, and, and, and um, but but she was right, and, and so uh, th- there was this duality there of, of these lines. Well, proverbs communicates like that. The fear of the Lord in nine ten is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So the concept of be, you know fearing God is the idea of knowing God. Um, and, and so when I was when I was growing up, I was I was sort of instructed that the fear of God was sort of like my relationship with my dad. I respect for my dad and honor for my dad and things like that. But the problem is, is when God is the object of fear in the Old Testament, you rarely ever find a situation where something like honor or respect is part of the mix. I mean, you can find things like dread or something like that, but but honor and respect, not so much. And so what fear of the Lord is, is fear of the Lord is the way the Old Testament, I believe, talks about faith. It's the way the Old Testament talks about faith. It is an unswerving confidence in God, and it's seen by this visceral sort of reality that we would call fear. I, I, I think that um, because of, there's so many things attached to uh, fear of God all the way through the Bible, whether it's happiness. Like in uh, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Moses says something like, uh, multiple times, will say something like, God has given you so much abundance, therefore fear him. See, that never came out of my mother's mouth. My mom never said, hey, you remember that great Christmas present your dad gave you? You should be afraid, right? That would have really been weird, uh, and, uh, because you know, in English, afraid and fear just have really a very limited time. If you think about uh, a piano, for us, the concept of fear is just one note, ding, ding, ding. It's just that one note. It always means you should be frightened. Uh, but in here in the Bible, I think it's a full chord. And the chord is, is, is confidence in God, but it always, that leading tone, the tone that you hear, that could be, sometimes it could be really dread or, or being frightened. Other times it could be very happy. Other times it could have this sense of um, uh, you know, confidence that, that's very obvious and connected to something like knowledge, just like we have here in Proverbs. Fear of the Lord is the controlling principle. It is the first and controlling principle of how you think about the entire world, because it's how you think about God. This is so obvious, in fact, that some commentators have said, did the writers of Proverbs, did the people of Israel believe that the Israelites were the only people in the world that could actually be wise? And I think the answer to that is yes. I think that they would have looked at their Assyrian and Moabite and any Egyptian counterparts. I've got loads of Egyptian literature, wisdom literature in my office Uh, If you're just struggling with sleep, uh, I I can can get it to you. uh, But, but, um, you know, you've got, um, you know, uh, compositions like the wisdom of Amenemope, this great ruler who, like Solomon, created all these proverbs. I think Solomon would look at him and go, you can do wise things. But wisdom, see, wisdom flows out of seeing the world as it really is. The only way you can see the world as it really is you see it through the filter of the only true living God. And so the writer of Proverbs just doesn't pull any punches. The very first principle of how to live life in a world where the context is hostile to the covenant of God is to know and believe God. And as you know and believe in God, this is the first principle, but it also controls everything else. It governs the way that you talk. It governs the way that you think. It governs the way that you uh, allow your emotions to either use you or you use them. It governs the way that you eat and drink. It governs the way that you deal with authority. It governs the way that you uh, raise your kids. All of those things are now driven by this idea that God is who he claims to be. Um. My you know my my wife and I when we first got married and when we first really more important to this story when we first started having kids we we were over on, uh, in the east uh, and so we lived in Alabama uh, there for just a few uh, years and then went up to Kentucky to to do my doctoral work and um and when and and there's when our kids began to get to school age and so we decided we would homeschool our kids now if you're in the homeschooling community you know that. Uh, you know, contrary to, to what other people think about the homeschool community, it's kind of varied. I mean, it's really varied. Uh, so you you have so from my wife and I, we were like, uh, you know, we we knew people that were <laughs> had these you know they were homeschooling their kids because these conspiracy theories. You know, they thought every public school teacher was like. Some SS agent, yeah, as I really super weird. Of course, yeah, we've got loads of public school teachers in our family, and we've never seen them put a kid on the rack, and so we're pretty confident they're good people. And 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 then other stuff that the government was trying to, you know, (laughs) you know, get their talons into their brain waves and stuff like that. It's really really strange. Um, And then some of them were just, I think, scared to let the kids out of their sight, and and uh, and so their kids, you know, kind of, I think, still probably live with them. Uh, for Angela and I, this was kind of a controlling idea. We want, to, we want our kids to read all the best literature. We want them to think about the things that are most significant to the world. We want our kids to contemplate justice and mercy. We want our kids to contemplate what it is to be human in God's world. But they have to do that through the lens of believing God is there. And so, for us, we could control that idea. I mean, even if you like uh, we've we've had our kids in private schools before that were you know christian, the the one that Angela works at right now is is fantastic. But we were part of another one prior to that that was the word Christian was an interesting adjective uh, that that they were used to describe the school. and and so I'm not completely sure, in fact, I'm rather confident that my kids could have probably had, a more, uh, maybe a better shot at listening to and hearing who God was from public school teachers I knew, rather than from this particular place that they were in. And so we, we were, we were kind of happy to pull them out of there at, at some point. But, but it was, but those, those ideas were, were really important to us. Like for us, development and how you think about the world has to go through this filter. This is not something that's ancillary to the real world. It's not something that's uh, you know, kind of a sideline issue to how my kid's marriage is going to go or what people they choose to marry. It's actually right at the very core of it all. It is the first and controlling principle. Do you, in fact, this is how, what the right of Proverbs, do you believe, do you believe that this God, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that chose David as king, do you believe that he alone is God? Because if you just kind of make him one God of many gods, which, of course, if you know, you know the Old Testament, you know that's exactly what they did. If you make him just one God of many, ironically, Solomon was the one who did that. One God of many, then you're not seeing him for the way he is. If you just make him as maybe one God of multiple gods, it could be in Israel. Well, you're not seeing this God the way he conveys himself. Seeing God for all that God is, is the beginning of living a mundane life that's full of joy and wisdom. It's also the beginning of shaping a community of people who now find themselves sort of in the rhythm of the same impulses and values that they see in the triune God. This is what drives churches that are are, are your size to still send out missionaries. It's what drives you to evangelize the people that are around you in your own world. It's what drives you to come and sing all these really great songs you sing. Is because you have this natural impulse. Faith is the thing that provides that. Knowing God for who he is, believing God for all he is, is the first step, the controlling principle of Wisdom. And wisdom is that thing that grants you the power and the, the, the clarity to live a covenant life in a covenant-hostile kind of environment. And we certainly live in that covenant-hostile environment. And that brings us to our next point. Our next point are the competing voices with wisdom, the competing voices with wisdom. I think mean, one of the things that drew me to the book of Proverbs early on uh, was the fact that there was nothing naive about it. Um, growing up uh, in Alabama, there was, a, there was a certain gullibility and naivete that went with being in church. In fact, I remember my friends and I sort of yeah, laughing a bit about the, um, uh, the, the, the church people that we, that we dealt with. Like when we would come back to, from college and stuff like that, and um, we had certainly—I you know, don't think any of us, yeah, you know, were Christians—but we had walked out and said the prayer, and that was enough for these people. They—they uh, they must be Christians. We thought that was incredibly naive. I didn't even believe there was a God, so it was extraordinary to listen to people still tell me that I was a, a Christian because I walked out and said the prayer. It was like having a—like having—I uh, had a particular aunt that used to give my brother and I these Christmas gifts. That were just the worst. Uh, they, we were confident that she had no concept that we were boys, uh, and uh, that, uh, and that we, we uh, and, and so we, she would give us these gifts that were just not, uh, you know, not, not even remotely, um, uh, you know, ideal for any two boys, but particularly two boys growing up in the in the country. Uh, it's like, um, you know, we, we were uh, kind of, you know, we were redneck kids, and we're not going to wear like mauve. You know, warm-up suits with our initials in cursive writing on the lapel. It's like, it's like a, we just want to well go to school and beg people to beat us up, and so and so we uh, so should give us these things, and we would want to take them back, but our mother would be like, "You can't take them back." And so when I, I came back from college, and I entrusted myself to you know my uh, my um, old youth minister, and just said, "I just you know I I." I i told my parents this. I just don't want the conversation. But I'm an atheist, and he just patted me on the shoulder. So I remember the day you walked the aisle. You're okay. It's like, this is just like my, my warm-up suit with my aunt. I, I can't give it back. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And so, uh, and it made, that made the idea of salvation seem cheap, just like that warm-up suit was. And, and I, I open up, uh, I open up the, um, the book of Proverbs, and this father is not gullible at all. He's not naive at all. Look at chapter 1, begin with verse 8. Hear my son, your father's instruction, forsake not your mother's teaching. They're graceful garland for your head and pendant for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit, we'll find all precious goods. We'll fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We'll have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil, they make haste to shed blood, and in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. This guy is not naive at all. This guy is saying to his son... There will be people who will come to you, and they will beckon you to go in with them and follow them. Now, it might be helpful to let you know that the purpose of the book of Proverbs, the purpose of the book of Proverbs is sort of royal homeschooling literature, and so this was the way that a prince would be fashioned by his father to be king. Of all the people in Israel that had to be wise, the king had to be wise before anyone else. And this Father says they're going to come to you and they're going to offer you the option of this first competing voice, unchecked power. Unchecked power. And we can just say it for ourselves because we're none of us are probably in the position of unchecked power, but we, ought, we, we have been drawn to power, right? Um, I, when I first got to what's now Redeemer Baptist Church, uh, it was by another name because we were in another town at the time, but the there was only, I think, roughly between five and ten people that were coming to the church. <coughs> Average age was like 110, I think, and and, um, and yet the the pastor and the associate pastor were in this political battle for this five and ten, you know, five to ten people uh, for their. For their affirmation and for their for the position of standing before them, it was it was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen. So like I I had never seen two men more deeply committed to mediocrity. Uh, I mean, it's just when you're when you're doing battle to win that battle, I mean, you've just lost sight of that there are actual battles in the world. But these poor guys, these, these and I think they're both probably brothers, and they just got caught up in things, it's easy to get caught up in them. Easy to get caught up in them. Nobody comes and talks to you like this. How many times have you had anybody come to you and say, hey, Tyler, what you doing this weekend? We're either going to watch the football game or lie in wait for innocent blood. Nobody does that. right? the The father is laying this out for the son as if to say... You'll know when they come. You'll know what they're talking about when they ask you these questions. They will be beckoning you for greed. They will be playing on your vanity. And what they'll really be telling you is let's treat other people, objectify other people, and make them our own for our own advantage. That is not naive at all. That's not gullible at all. That's a guy who has been around the block. He understands how the world works. And he wants his son to understand that to live wisdom out, you've got to live wisdom out in the noise of competing voices. And one of those competing voices is power. It's a powerful voice, too. I remember uh, prior to becoming a pastor, I'm amazed at how good I was at pastoring. Just like prior to becoming a parent, uh, I remember being perfectly willing to give parents advice on how to be parents prior to becoming a parent. Then after becoming a parent, I got far quieter about advice. People come to me and they'd say, hey, my kid is doing this. What do you think? I'd go, it's on you. I don't know. Uh, it's, uh, you know, best of luck. Let me know what you do. Uh, it's, uh, I, be- I realized, oh, this is, there's nothing about this as easy. This is all really challenging. And to top it all off, every, single, every kid is like t- totally different. I had um, um, uh, Karis and her brother, Jonathan, have a lot of uh, similarities, but then they're also very, very different. Uh, if I drew a line in the sand and looked at Jonathan and said, do not jump over this line, Jonathan would take 10 steps back and run and dive over the line. If I looked at Karis, I said, do not clear this line. Karis would walk up, lay her toe right over the line, look up at me and smile, and get her head. And it's like, same thing. I mean, they're doing the same thing. It's just like, both of them are doing it in totally different ways. And so as a parent, you're like, I'm not completely confident that I've ever read how to handle this. And so you just got to, you know, you got you to gotta work with it. And it's just difficult. Uh, and, uh, and so in the same kind of way, um, you know, advising and providing advice for kids or providing advice to live by. It has to be done in this realistic way, right? And, and, and Proverbs is built to craft a king in this realistic setting, this competing voice. Power. Power draws us because we are vain at our core. We love to be loved at our core, And so because of that, we're drawn into this concept of vanity and easy pickings for power. The second um, competing voice is, um, I'll I'll kind of adjust this uh, for parts of the audience here, but illicit intimacy, illicit intimacy. If you look at chapter 7, my, uh, beginning in verse 1, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the table of your heart. That's the kind of thing that you would only say in Israel, typically about Torah. And so wisdom and Torah are very, very connected here. Uh, and um, say to wisdom, you're my sister. Call inside your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. And then he describes a young man that he watches walk down in front of a young lady's, uh, a, a lady's house. Verse 10 the woman meets him dressed like a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet don't stay home. Now in the street, now in the market, now at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him and with a bold face says to him, I've offered my sacrifices today, I've paid my vows. Now I've come out to meet you and seek you eagerly, and I've found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey, took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he'll come back, and with... Much seductive speech she persuades him. Her smooth talk compels him, and all at once he follows her as an ox goes to slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till the arrow pierces his liver, or as a bird rushes into a snare, he doesn't know that it'll cost him his life. The, the, the second idea is every bit as powerful. Power is a massive competing voice of wisdom. Illicit intimacy is also a powerful competing voice to wisdom. It also plays on the vanity of the individual. It plays on the self-orientation of an individual. And look at this. This lady, the, the, the father describes her in ways that if you were probably sitting there talking about this with your dad, it would probably make you really uncomfortable uh, when, when you were younger. And yet, he describes her. He doesn't have this you know, um, sort of uh, you know, thin way of describing her. She is profoundly seductive. She is convincing. She is beautiful. She is alluring. He's trying to tell the son, when this happens, there will be nothing inside of you that will not want to go with her. So you have to fix it in your mind beforehand But there is death on the other side of this. This lady has a husband, and she, fallaciously or not, more than likely fallaciously, tells her, oh no, he's, he's gone for a long time, he, he may never come back, he's, he's coming back in full moon, he'll be gone for a long, long time, took a big bag of money with him, he won't be back till that money is spent. Maybe, maybe not, maybe the death costs him there, maybe it doesn't, but the concept of wisdom is if you lose wisdom, see, it's Adam and Eve kind of stuff. Uh, when, when students try to describe Adam and Eve to me, they'll, they'll say, well, God told them now that they've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that now they have to have death, which means that they die. And then they'll stop and go, but they don't die then. They, they, they die later, like much later. So they live quite a long time. And then I just sit there and watch them, you know, simmer in their own confusion, uh, the matter, and I say, that, that particular death is one of the deaths that's talked about, but... There's more, don't you think? They go, oh yeah, like spiritual death. Is say, right, that's good. That's how. That, that's the language that this writer's uh, capitalizing on. Maybe, it, maybe, maybe, maybe death doesn't happen immediately to someone who makes this tragic mistake. But that, it kills. And it kills perpetually. Whether it's the life of relationships. Whether it is the trust that anyone would have in you afterwards. Whether it is inside of your own being. This has the same effect on the people that engage it as power does. You remember power? Those who pursue unjust greed, it actually affects you. It does violence to the possessor of those people who get unjust gain. Same thing here. Look at the way that uh, the, the writer describes it to his sons in 24 through 27 in the same chapter. Sons, listen to me and be attentive to my words. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't strain to her path, for many is a victim. She's laid low. All of her slain or a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Those people that receive the pleasure, regardless of how remarkable it might be, those people also receive death. That pleasure doesn't work life inside of them. It works death inside of them. The father doesn't back away from that there's pleasure involved. The father doesn't back away from anything. I think it's one of the things I really appreciate about my dad. Uh, when you grow up poor, you you always, uh, it's, it's really common to always say things about rich people like, oh, they're not happy, and, and, and things like that. I remember my dad, one time I, I said that. I can't, remember, I can't remember who it was. Uh, we were watching a, watching a news uh, interview with somebody, and, and uh, and I was just here, you know, I drank the Kool Aid, uh, you know, and and I said I said, Yeah, I said, Yeah, I know they've got money, but they're probably not happy. And my dad looked at me, he goes, I'm gonna I'm going to roll the dice and say they probably are, son. <laughs> he goes, they, they, he goes they, they may not be happy like you're happy, but I'm pretty sure they're happy. And, uh, and he, he listed like 12 things that, that he felt like probably made them happy. And, uh, and I walked off thinking, was oh, probably right. Yeah, that's probably right. And, and so uh, they, it's, it's, it's easy to kind of build up this naivete about anything that you haven't experienced. Father's not that guy. The father says, son. There's nothing but pleasure involved with this on the front end. But on the back end, those people that receive that pleasure also imbibe death. It might be death that you don't immediately uh, feel, but I promise you, son, it's death. And death is the way that this pleasure leads to. Her victims are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to death. And so these competing voices are powerful. And so when you're thinking about wisdom, you think about living a covenant life, and you're thinking about your your church. You want to ask a question: Who is this voice? Is this voice, for example, playing to my vanity? Is this voice playing to my sense of becoming known and, and things like that? So believe it or not, that's a real temptation for pastors. Uh, you know, pastors uh, being a pastor is a thankless job in a lot of ways, uh, and um, and so all of a sudden, if someone notices you from the outside or, or you realize that you can do this one thing and, and draw attention to yourself, things, it's, it's really easy to do. I, have, I fought with it all the time uh, um, uh, when, I was, when I was pastoring. Luckily, uh, being a professor, there's this bubble that you tend to live in, and as long as you kind of adjust the bubble, those things are, are fine. But, 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 but the pastoring is, is really difficult. Uh, and, and so, um, and so, sometimes you want to make sure that you are encouraging. I mean, it sounds totally, uh, you know, uh, self-propagating. Given the fact that your pastor is my son-in-law, I'm, I'm, this is a backwards way of me saying, "Take care of my boy." Uh, but but, uh, but you want to you want to encourage him. You want to make sure that he knows that he doesn't need affirmation from anybody because he's got affirmation from you. Or, you know, that's the same way in, in a marriage. Uh, you know, you want to make sure that you encourage and love one another in such a way that it renders it irrelevant what anyone else thinks on the outside. And that leads us to our last point, is the gospel and wisdom. What defines wisdom better than the gospel? I don't think anything does. Um, the, uh, the, toward the end of uh, Proverbs... You, um, you bump into two ladies, Woman Wisdom and Woman Folly. And Woman Wisdom and Woman Folly seem to live around the same area, and they appeal to the same people. They call out to the youth. They call out to those who are simple. But Woman Wisdom beckons them to a feast of wine and aged meat. Woman Folly just has bread and water, and it's stolen But they both appeal to the same group. So what you want to do is you want to pursue the the feast of the gospel. Pursuing the feast of the gospel simply means identifying who it is that's really calling to you. How is it that they're calling to you? What the gospel does is it calls to you and says, it's true, you are actually, it's very honest, you are worse than you could possibly imagine. But you are more loved than you could ever have dreamed. Worse than, you, uh, worse than you're wanting to even admit to yourself, probably. But you are loved more than ever. See, there's a real difference. When, when your vanity is played to, the oh, I'm terrible stuff, the, the self-deprecating language, can just simply play into vanity. Just in the same way as someone who's cocky or, or, or who's you know braggadocious or something like that, those guys are playing into their own vanity. But so is self-deprecating talk. Sometimes it's just beckoning. I used to have a, a relative, uh, my aunt Evelyn. And she would she would constantly uh, you know do this self-deprecating talk just to get you to compliment her. And so she would say things like, "This jacket, this jacket. I, I've had this forever. It doesn't even look good anymore, does it?" Yeah, uh, looking directly at you, uh, just to get you to say, no, no, no. You know, it's beautiful. And she go, oh, that's she's, uh, and, and she and it wouldn't even take a lot. It was just, she was just playing for compliment after compliment. And she was, of course, she was super subject to flattery and stuff like that. And and um, um and that kind of thing is is uh, is when you know that your self-deprecation is not helping you. But it's okay to look into the mirror and go, there's something really wrong with me. <laughs> there's something I, 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 find myself, I find myself collapsing all the time to self-love. I'm, I'm vain. I'm arrogant. I'm weak. I desperately need the affirmation of others demonstrating me to be just pathetic and weak. But I am profoundly loved. And so today I'm going to choose to feast at the house of woman wisdom, confident that he has called me to this. And I'm going to delight in knowing that that he loves me. Woman wisdom is, is the way that the writer portrays God. Since the writer is a king and since he's talking to his son, everything that is beautiful, everything that's desirable is portrayed as a woman. Also, before you get too proud of that woman, uh, everything that is super dangerous is also portrayed as a woman. Uh, and so, you know, you give, you take. Some. And, but, 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 the, uh, but that, that idea is, is driven here. The gospel is the feast that you're called to. And so run to that feast. Run to the, the feast of the gospel. Um, it's okay to see yourself in the most realistic way possible, but... The most realistic way possible, if you're a Christian, is also to see yourself loved profoundly. Do you know what? I I, I pray one prayer. I probably have told you this before. I pray one prayer over and over and over again before I preach anywhere I go to. It's a simple prayer. I pray, save these people from me. Save these people from my impiety. Save these people from my pride. Save these people from my from from my vanity, save them from all of that, so that they can just hear you. Because I know, I know me, and I can smile at you, and I can and I can I can uh, I can blow loads of sunshine at you with lots of southern charm. But at the end of the day, I know that my my motivations, my intentions at times are sinful. I need God to save you. See that's that, that's me going to the feast of wisdom. Say I'm I'm not interested in stolen bread and water. I want to I want to drink the wine and the good meat of the gospel. I want to be able to encourage brothers and sisters with that as well. And I I I, I like to think that I do the same thing with my own kids, or my my wife daily when I'm when I'm in the morning doing my devotional. I'm begging God to to save the people around me from me. I'm begging Him to save me from me. Continually give me His grace. Continually feed me the food of the gospel. Continually draw me to the beauty of wisdom that I might live a covenant life in a covenantly hostile place. I pray that this would be the thing that would shape you as a congregation and that you would get great joy from loving God's wisdom. Father, in the name of Christ, I thank you for these brothers and sisters and ask that you would encourage them by your spirit with your wisdom. In the name of Jesus, amen.